cost is one of the top reasons someone seeks an abortion in this country, according to the Guttmacher Institute, which supports abortion rights. In the U.S. these days, it costs an estimated $300,000 to raise a kid through the age of 17. That's according to the Brookings Institution. This show is part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with KUNC in northern Colorado and five other public radio stations across the country, where we look at how our government is or isn't working for people. Now, Colorado has become a haven for abortions as most Republican-led states have cracked down on access. Many people are traveling across state lines to access abortion care in the state. KUNC's Robin Vincent spoke with Haley from Wyoming. With little money and a lot of stress, Haley got an abortion at the Planned Parenthood in Fort Collins, Colorado. That's a five-hour drive away from her home in Riverton, Wyoming. When she called me back and she told me that they got me in as an emergency in the morning at 9 o'clock, I think I called my grandma sobbing. Like, I was so grateful and I was so thankful just to have somebody, like, listen to me. The Cobalt Abortion Fund in Colorado pays for abortion patients' procedures and travel. It says since Roe was overturned, 94% of patients it has helped have been from out of state. Just before Roe v. Wade was overturned, state lawmakers declared abortion a fundamental right in Colorado. And that's one of just a handful of states that don't limit at what point in a pregnancy an abortion can be performed. Abortion providers say more out-of-state abortion seekers are causing unprecedented wait times. Robin Vincent spoke to Dr. Warren Hearn in Boulder. We're booked out two or three weeks, and that's never happened before. People need immediate attention, and they shouldn't have to wait. And it's very bad for them to have to wait. It increases the risk, it increases the cost, and emotional anguish and all the rest. And while wait times at abortion clinics grow, some patients seek out other resources, like crisis pregnancy centers. Those centers do not provide abortions or refer people to places where they can access abortions. After the break, we visit one of these centers in Colorado. And with less abortion access across the country, we discuss the assistance available to pregnant people throughout gestation and birth. What support do parents have to raise children to adulthood? And who's providing it? We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, you can join future conversations by downloading the 1A Vox Pop app and leaving us a voicemail. Let's get into it. The following piece was produced by 1A's June Leffler. June traveled to Colorado to explore how the end of Roe is impacting one pregnancy crisis center in the state. Family portraits hang on the walls of Alternatives Pregnancy Center outside Denver, Colorado. One set of images show a single mom with her infant. Linda Sakamano runs the center. We have a volunteer who's a professional photographer, so we offer our families a free photo session. So it's just another way of offering them a little extra that they might not be able to afford to have you know, on their own. The happy images contrast from the emotions clients often have when they first learn about an unplanned pregnancy, Sakamano says. You're feeling sadness, anxiety. You don't know what to do. She says some clients find her with a simple Google search. Pregnancy. Help. Sakamano says her four centers are upfront about what they do and don't offer. They don't offer abortions, and they don't refer clients to abortion providers. This is a generalization, so I'll just say that up front, that every woman thinks the only way to deal with unplanned pregnancy is abortion. 
and yet we know that's not true. What Alternatives Pregnancy Center does offer is initial ultrasounds, STD testing and treatment, and counseling. She says the first step is to get clients to take a minute to breathe. Sakamano hopes clients leave with a realistic view of their pregnancy. They might have overwhelming pressures, but they also have strengths. So how do we help them tap into their strengths, their support network? Who is going to help them through this process? If clients want more help, alternatives will pair them with mentors up to one year after birth. Sakamano believes the support can help with the transition to parenthood, both emotionally and financially. How do we connect her with her immediate needs? Is it a food bank? Is it rent assistance? Is it housing? The centers don't provide any of this, but they can point clients to charities or public agencies that do. The Catholic Church is a leader in Colorado's anti-abortion rights movement. It also provides medical care, diapers, clothes, and housing to new parents. Brittany Vesely is executive director of the Colorado Catholic Conference. This is a, a wide range of services that the Catholic Church has to support uh, mothers and children, both prenatal and postnatal, through their whole lives. Juliana Day is another anti-abortion rights activist. She's working on an app to connect expecting parents to resources. I was a single mother, and I got my education, my degrees. I worked very hard. I raised my son, and uh, we can do it. It's about not uh, disempowering a woman. It's about sending a strong message that, yes, women can do it. Abortion rights advocates say abortion restrictions fall hardest on low-income communities and communities of color. But for Day, suggesting these folks are in most need of abortion care is insulting. Tom Perel agrees. He's the Colorado president of Democrats for Life. Instead of standing up saying, you don't have to be rich to have a pregnancy and have a successful family, instead of that, they're saying... Your, the solution in your community is abortion. The solution to poverty in your community is abortion. And, and to take that approach is just the antithesis to what, what I thought the Democratic Party stand, stood for. Perel is one of those guys that stands outside the local Planned Parenthood most days. The sign he waves says, don't lose hope. I can help you. He says some have taken him up on the offer. You know, we had a woman who, who lost her job in covid she had a child that was less than one years old, and she was pregnant again. So we paid her rent for a couple of months. I helped her find a, you know, get her job back, which she had lost, and helped her husband find a job. And all of a sudden, that changes the dynamic completely. Sakomano, who runs the pregnancy center, says she hopes her services curb the overall number of abortions in Colorado. And we know that no matter what the Supreme Court decides, no matter what the Colorado legislators decide, unplanned pregnancy is not going anywhere. It's part of our shared humanity, and collectively as a community, we need to offer support and resources. And that's what Alternatives does. But Perel advocates for more governmental support outside of a string of community-based groups. Yeah, I mean, that's where I differ from some of my conservative pro-life friends. A lot of them think that we could accomplish our goals through private charity and philanthropy. Um, and I believe that we need a, a, a much more robust safety net. He hopes expanding that safety net would provide more realistic options beyond abortion for people with unplanned pregnancies. But Colorado is light years away from taking away that right to choose. For 1A, I'm June Leffler in Denver, Colorado. 
That piece was produced as part of our Remaking America partnership with KUNC in Greeley, Colorado, and five other public radio stations across the country. Let's bring in our first guest. Joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Shafali Luthra. She covers health, gender, and inequity for the nonprofit newsroom, The 19th. Shafali, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So I I just want to get your initial reaction to what you just heard. I think this is a really interesting and complicated topic. um, And I'm really struck by sort of how you mentioned really early on the intense burden that parenthood can impose, right, for someone who has not planned it. It is incredibly expensive to raise a child, right? $300,000 per brooking. The Kaiser Family Foundation recently did an analysis that found that with the best health insurance possible, you're probably paying at least $3,000 out of pocket just for giving birth. And, And what strikes me about this is you can achieve, you can acquire a lot of smaller supports from these centers, right? Some diapers, prenatal vitamins, um, connections to a mentor. But at the same time, we are seeing many of the states that are enacting really strict bans on abortion are the same ones that have resisted expanding the safety net, right? They are the states like Texas that have declined to expand Medicaid, the health insurance program for low-income people that has been linked over and over again in research to better health outcomes, to living longer, to better pregnancy-related outcomes. And I think there's a question to be asked in here because the services that these centers provide, they're short-term, right? They last a year after you give birth, but parenthood is lifelong. And this is raising real questions about whether the folks who are now going to be forced into pregnancy are able to actually get the longer-term supports they need. Well, there's also a question here about just how far nonprofit or charity support can go if that institutional support is not increasing. I think that's exactly right. Um, One of the things we heard in the segment, right, is the idea that people might be referred to government services for housing, right, or to food banks or other sorts of public and private charitable organizations. The problem here, though, right, is you can be referred to a housing organization, right, through that's run through your state, run through your city, but if that's not adequately funded, then there's only so much they can do. And what we haven't seen on a national level or a state level has been uh, what you would expect, right, which is a response that now that abortions are being banned in all these states, those lawmakers who, right, sort of take this pro-life mantle haven't come around to say, now we want to invest in childcare, we want to put more public dollars into housing, right? And there just are inherent limits to what private charities can do on their own. And briefly, Shafali, what is the state of abortion access in the U.S. right now? Today's a big day. We just saw new laws go into effect in Tennessee, in Texas, in Oklahoma, and in Idaho, right? Idaho and Tennessee were allowing abortions up to six weeks. Now they are not allowing abortions almost at all. Texas and Oklahoma added more stringent penalties. We are seeing a ban take effect in North Dakota tomorrow as well, which means at this point we have abortion banned in a dozen states. We have six-week bans in a few more states, and more bans are likely coming down the line. Let's add a new voice to the conversation. Diana Green Foster is the author of the book, The Turnaway Study, The Cost of Denying Women Access to Abortion. She's also a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Diana, welcome to 1A. 
Thank you so much for having me, Jen. Uh, Diana, you studied financial and medical outcomes for people who were refused abortions uh, versus those who got an abortion in the Turnaway study. Very broadly, what did you find? So when we look at people who received the abortion they wanted and those who wanted an abortion and weren't able to get them, we see big differences in physical health because carrying a pregnancy to term involves a lot more physical risk than having an abortion. And that's not just the end of the pregnancy, but it lasts for years. And anyone who's had a kid knows how much having a child and giving birth changes your body. But for some people, it actually can be deadly. And um, the other area that we see big differences is in socioeconomic well-being. And so a leading reason people give for wanting to have an abortion is they feel that they don't have enough money. And it's rarely the only reason, but we do find that people are right. They understand what it would be like to try and raise a child on the resources they have. And when people are unable to get an abortion, they're more likely to fall below the federal poverty level. They're more likely to not be able to work full time. They're more likely to report that they just don't have enough money for basic living needs for years later. What barriers did people who were turned away face in accessing abortion care? Yeah, so even before this Dobbs decision, abortion was actually very difficult to get in much of America. People travel hundreds of miles, and as a turnaway study showed, people were turned away. People weren't able to get their wanted abortions even before the end of Roe, and now it is much, much worse. So um, there are people in states that will either have to travel hundreds of miles to go to another state, Um, or they're going to try and order medication abortion pills online. And so it's just a huge, you know, dramatic change in our abortion rights in this country, and we really don't know what the outcomes will be. Shafali, there's there's a lot of focus put on the costs of raising a child, but what are some of the costs associated with going through a pregnancy? I think they're really significant and not discussed enough, right? We know that healthcare is incredibly expensive in this country. And I think the the Kaiser Family Foundation number is really compelling, right? The idea that having employer-sponsored health insurance, right, the, the gold standard for healthcare in this country means that you will still pay probably $3,000 out of pocket. And researchers told me that that was probably an underestimate. That's just one single cost, right? And then we have the costs that maybe you will spend on the birth itself. Um, I have spoken to folks who have had complications in their delivery. That has meant they have been paying off the costs of having a child, just medically delivering that child for years to come, right? Taking out loans to pay off those bills. And this is really significant. And it's kind of striking that while we have talked about sort of the loss of this medical option, we haven't really spent as much time talking about something also very important, which is the fact that healthcare of all forms remains very expensive in this country. Insurance remains non-universal, and there hasn't really been much movement from the right this contingency that wants to ostensibly support right life and, and a firm life hasn't really discussed at all ways to to mitigate those health care costs, right, or to expand access to insurance. Diana, based on the demographics you studied, who's most likely to experience an unplanned pregnancy? So people who have abortions in this country are disproportionately already low income, um, and they are disproportionately people of color, 
they are half of them are in their 20s and they uh the majority are already raising children so they're already parenting and they understand what the experience of having a child is and what the costs will be Shafali in your reporting have you found connections around that that medical care access issue and people experiencing unplanned pregnancies I think what it really drives home to me right is is sort of what what Diana's talking about which is that People in this situation, they understand already what an incredible financial burden and medical burden having a child can can impose. I'm thinking about right now a woman I met in Mississippi who had driven from Texas to get there, right? And she woke up at three in the morning to drive across multiple state lines to make it to a clinic. And it, she did this in part because she had multiple children at home already, and she understood that she just could not feasibly have another child. What what we understand is that the burdens are really intimately connected. And one thing that I'm also really struck by is that research suggests maybe a third of people who become pregnant in this country didn't have health insurance at all before they conceived. And that has consequences too, right? It leads to higher risks of hypertension, of other sorts of medical conditions that make pregnancy inherently high risk and potentially resulting in intense morbidity or even death. Well, in Shafali, it's important to note that when we talk about maternal mortality in the U.S., Black women are about three times more likely to die uh, during a pregnancy or, or during the course of giving birth as white women. Do I have that right? You do. And I think this is really important, right? Because what we have seen is maternal mortality, right? The, the consequences of these pregnancy-related deaths, they stem from right, implicit bias in the medical system, but they also stem from real lack of access to to competent and thorough medical care during pregnancy, before pregnancy, and in the first year after pregnancy. The definition of this pregnancy-related death includes that one year after, when folks often lose insurance, when folks experience mental health crises too, right? Postpartum depression is a real concern that, I mean, private organizations just aren't really equipped to address, and that in many cases, right, can lead to worsened health outcomes and we know has also resulted in like, post-birth post suicide as a, a public health crisis we don't talk about. Diana, what does your study suggest about our, our social safety net broadly in this country for, for pregnant people and lower-income parents? Yeah, so what we find when we follow people who um, received abortions or were denied abortions is that already um, we don't have a sufficient safety net to keep Uh, low-income families from experiencing hardship when they have kids. And I want to make clear, the the debate about abortion is not a question, should all low-income people have abortions or babies? The question is, if somebody decides that they want to have an abortion, they decide that they don't have the resources to raise a child, should they be able to make that decision or should politicians make that decision? So, uh, this, you know, yes, people are strong and resilient and they do the best they can, but um, it is, you know, resilience doesn't pay bills and people know their circumstances, they know their aspirations. Many people who have abortions want to have kids later under with better circumstances and when they're unable to get an abortion, they're actually less likely to have an intended child later. So it's not necessarily pro-birth to, to deny someone access to abortion because it may mean that they're 
less likely to have the circumstances later to have a wanted child. Shafali, we touched on this earlier. The New York Times and NPR produced analysis comparing the safety net uh, for children and parents in different states. And they've both found that states with abortion bans tend to have higher rates of poverty and more people without medical insurance. They're also less likely to have expanded Medicaid coverage for their residents. Why is Medicaid coverage so important? There is such a robust body of evidence that shows that expanding Medicaid improves people's access to healthcare, and it ultimately does improve their health. Researchers have done study after study directly linking Medicaid expansion to, to fewer people dying. And I think this is really important, right? We, The Affordable Care Act, in a way, gave us a really perfect mechanism to test this because you had states that did expand access to Medicaid and you had states that didn't. And it just I think it's really important to underscore this. This is a very clear evidence-based policy mechanism that people could adopt if they, if they wanted to, right? It is, in fact, paid for by the federal government. It does not raise state taxes. And what's really interesting is states like Texas, right, that have been leaders in enacting abortion restrictions have not only declined to expand Medicaid, they've also declined other sorts of, right, you can extend postpartum Medicaid just for people who have given birth, right? The default is you only keep your health insurance for two months afterward. And Texas, like every state in the country, it was given the option to expand coverage for a year so that if you had just had a child, you could keep your health insurance for a year when you are incredibly medically vulnerable. The state instead chose not to do that. They are looking to extend coverage for six months. And it just really doesn't compute or connect with all of the evidence that we have seen that shows that more access to healthcare, while not being a silver bullet, could address some of the really intense long life, lifelong consequences and immediate medical consequences of having a child. Shafali, often when we, we talk about the cost of raising a child, child care is at the center of that issue. How affordable and accessible is child care right now? Half of the country lives in child care deserts. Child care is not affordable. It is not accessible for most people. I have seen in my personal life and in my reporting people simply unable to find an affordable option. This was a signature component of the original Build Back Better plan that was scrapped, right? There is no federal plan to expand access to childcare, uh, a system that was already really tenuous and fragile and has been quite decimated by the pandemic. What we're seeing now is childcare is is difficult to attain. It is unaffordable. There are not enough spots and there are no plans really on the federal or state level to try and build that network back. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. Now let's bring another voice into the conversation. Emily Burning is co-founder and president of Let Them Live. That's an anti-abortion rights organization based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It offers financial support to pregnant people. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So what exactly does your organization pay for? Yeah, so um, Let Them Live is 
as you said, an organization that financially supports women who feel like they have to have an abortion just because they can't pay their bills. And we help with a variety of bills. We pay most commonly is rent. Um, we help with the housing issue, um, groceries, utilities, car payments, um, you name it. There's cell phone bills. Um, we help with a variety of, of bills that women um, and pregnant women are struggling with. Now, you've said your organization gives on average $17,000 to each client you serve. But it ends up costing about $300,000 to raise a child to the age of 17. That's according to a recent Brookings Institution estimate. And we know that the cost can continue well past that age. So there's a big gap there. How are you ensuring people get the support and resources they need long after birth? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, there's two things I would say. So you know, that's the average amount of support we've helped women with upwards of, you know, $75,000 or more throughout the course of their pregnancy and after. Um, And let them live, you know, we don't expect that we are the one-stop solution, um, you know, to to crisis pregnancies, to this issue of uh, women not being able to financially support themselves and feel like they're in a situation where they can't bring another child um, into the world. And as it was mentioned before, actually, that's it's not always just financial. It's always mixed in with other things, maybe domestic violence. Um, so we don't expect that we are going to solve this 100%. We do everything that we can. Um, but, you know, I, I actually agree with everything that has been said. We all recognize the same problems. Our solutions are just different. You know, the socio- socioeconomic problems, the lack of access to competent medical care during and after pregnancy, you know, um, there's not a f- sufficient safety net. Um, and Childcare is too expensive. All of those things we agree need to be changed and there needs to be legislation. There needs to be money there for women that are experiencing um, these crisis pregnancies and have no idea how to bring their child into the world. You know, on the flip side of things, I've had many, many conversations with our moms that we've helped through our program. And the reality is, is that women are strong. Women are empowered. If we empower women, they're going to feel empowered. But in, in, the, in the case of the clients you're working with, these are people who made that choice to go through with the pregnancy. And I think what we've heard from other guests today is that for them, the better choice was, was not to go for it with the pregnancy. But when you talk about the legislative piece of this, what work is your organization doing to, to push legislators in your state to strengthen that social safety net? Um, So we are going to be starting to do that. Um, We are a 501c3 right now, so we need to obtain our 501c4 status before we can really get into that. Um, But there's many other organizations that are also legislate or lobbying for that type of legislation to come about because we realize that like if we're going to come together and give women all the support that they can have we this is one aspect that we need to tackle. I want to play this voicemail we got from Barbara in Michigan. Are you including the mental health of the person being forced to go through an unplanned, unwanted pregnancy and delivering a child? I am 75 years old. I still suffer from the trauma of having been put through that. 
Barbara, thanks for sharing that with us. So for some context, there are, of course, the financial costs of pregnancy, but it can also be traumatic. 700 women die each year in the United States as a result of pregnancy or delivery complications. That's according to the CDC. And 10% of people with a prior pregnancy complication meet the full criteria for PTSD, and approximately 30% meet partial criteria. Uh, That's according to the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. So Emily, with that context, how would you respond to Barbara's question about that mental health support? Well, what I would say is at Let Them Live, and I can only speak for Let Them Live, we're not forcing women to do anything, right? So what's happening is there's a lot of women that are choosing abortion and they aren't aware of all of the support that's out there for them to make a, a, a choice, right? So what we're trying to do is say, hey, here's another option for you. We can't force women to not have abortions, right? They are the ones that are walking into that clinic. We can't do anything other than tell them we're here and what our support is to help them. So there's no force going on. All that we can do is say, hey, we love you. We want to help you. Here's what we can provide for you and work with them on their situation and say, what do you need and how can we do that? As we've said before, not being ready to have a child and not being able to afford one are two of the top reasons people seek out abortions. And the Dobbs decision overturning Roe took away that access for millions of people. What obligation do you think the anti-abortion rights movement has to expectant parents who otherwise would have chosen to end their pregnancy? I think we have a a major obligation to them. I think we have an obligation to be there for the families financially, emotionally. Um, You know, it's difficult. I will say as a pro-life organization, you know, we face a lot of barriers. You know, we try to run ads on social media, but we're shadow banned. You know, we try to say, hey, we're trying to help, but we're shut down. And so if we are just allowed to give our support in the way that we know how to give our support, women and and families will feel like they have a full range of support and knowledge of all of the options and resources that they have available. And then at the same time, how do you think about the limitations of charity or nonprofit organizations trying to fill What's a a huge gap for some families trying to provide for for their children in the absence of of legislative movement? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 difficult because you know we're only one nonprofit, right? And and charities do amazing work. We can't do it all, so there definitely needs to be a combination of support from the government and and support from charities, right? We we can't cover every single thing that needs to be covered. And so I think it's important that the pro-life movement and people that are pro-life, especially pro-life legislators, need to actually get in on this discussion and start saying, okay, well, we can't just say you shouldn't have an abortion. We should say, hey, we want to help you choose life and here's how we can help you. There needs to be a second piece to that. And there needs to be Um, knowledge given to women that, hey, here are your resources. That's Emily Burning with Let Them Live. That's an anti-abortion rights organization based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Emily, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Shafali, I'd love to hear just your reaction to what we heard from Emily and and the actions they're taking to try to support um, some pregnant people. I think this, again, is, is really complicated. And one notion that I do sort of want to to question a little bit is the idea that folks who are walking in and choosing abortion have not thought about this deeply. I have spoken to many people who have sought abortions, Diana has as well, and she can speak to what she's seen. What I have seen is 
everyone I have spoke to has thought a lot about what they would like to do. They have weighed the options. Can they have another pregnancy? Can they give birth again? Can they raise a child? Does adoption work for them? Are there other options? This is not something people take lightly. It is a very personal decision. And I think it is really difficult to to imagine that people are are choosing this because they have been told they only have two options, right? To to suffer or to have an abortion. And the other notion that that I do think is really important to highlight is something that that the voicemails you played alluded to, right? Which is the idea of how traumatizing it can be to be pregnant when you don't want to be. I have spoken to a lot of folks, even in the past two weeks, who have told me their abortion stories. And that's been a real theme, is they've had to wait even a few weeks to get an abortion, and it's just been so scary. They they don't want to be pregnant, and every day they wake up knowing that they are, and that's something they will carry with them for a long time. And And the final piece of it that I do think is really important to note is that people's experiences are very different, and for some people, when they give birth, they are very happy. I recently spoke to a young woman who did give birth after seeking an abortion and not being able to get one. And what she told me, and I have been thinking about this constantly since, is that she she loves this baby that she has, but she really still wishes she had been able to get an abortion. And I think these are voices that are often erased and their perspectives really matter. Shafali, when we have these conversations, uh, some people point to adoption as an option to avoid the financial burden of parenthood, not the financial burden of pregnancy. But how complicated is that as an option? It's incredibly complicated, right? Foster care systems are under-resourced. Adoption systems are under-resourced as well. And I've spoken to many people who are pregnant. I've met them in abortion clinics who told me that they looked into adoption first, But for whatever reason, it didn't work for them. It was too difficult. It was too hard. Some people told me they had been through the adoption system themselves, and based on their experiences, they didn't want to go through that again. Just Me tweeted, please include girls in your conversation about abortion access. Unfortunately, it's not just adults who get pregnant. Shafali, what are you watching for as this continues to play out? I think the most important thing to watch is looking longer term at what the health consequences are of the loss of abortion rights. Who's going to be able to travel? Who will try to self-manage at home? Who will be forced to carry pregnancies a term that they did not plan to? I don't believe that these burdens will be distributed equally, and I think complications will emerge that we could not have predicted, and I want to see what those are. That's Shafali Luthra. She covers health, gender, and inequity for the nonprofit newsroom The 19th. Also with us was Diana Green Foster. She's the author of the book The Turnaway Study, The Cost of Denying Women Access to Abortion. She's also a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Shafali, Diana, thanks to you both. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with KUNC in Northern Colorado and five other public radio stations across the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.